for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. The first Psalm of all the Psalms. I want us to talk this morning about blessed is the man. As we start a new year, I want to talk about what it means to be blessed by God. And here's how I want us to begin this year in, um, in a... Uh, uh, a sign of uh, reverence and awe for the Lord, I want to ask you to stand for the reading of His Word and then remain standing after the reading for just a moment of time. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 1, the psalmist makes very clear two kind of people in this world. Those who live under God's blessing and those who do not. And I want you to begin this morning by considering this. Have you considered which you are? Have you considered which one most adequately describes you? The psalmist doesn't attempt to deal with all of our problems or every issue of life, but at the time of year when we resolve to improve our life, and rightfully so, we must address this one main issue for all of life. Will you walk with God or will you live in isolation from Him? Which is really the issue with which we deal today. And so whether or not you have prayed this way already this year, I want to invite you to join us in a prayer, not only for our congregation, but for each individual here today, just to simply ask God to bless us in 2015. Some of you may want to kneel, some of you may want to sit, you may want to remain standing, whatever posture for you signifies a, an honor or a respect before the Lord, I want to invite you to assume that posture. As we go before the Lord, bow our heads in prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning a people confessing our great need of you. Lord Jesus, as we begin this time of year, we are thinking about resolutions and ways that we can improve our life. But God, our hope is grounded in you and you alone. And we come before you to simply ask that you would bless us. That you would bless our lives. That you would bless our marriages. You would bless our children and our homes. You would bless us in our work and in our labors. You would bless our church. We pray that you would bless our city. And that you would bless our witness in the city. And our gospel labors. And God we ask that this blessing might come to us. Not just for us. But for your honor and glory. And that as we are blessed we might live as a blessing for others. And we seek your face in this. Because we believe your blessing is like none other. 
And we desire to be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Blessed is the man. I love that phrase. That's a beautiful phrase, isn't it? I don't really care what comes after it. I want it. I don't know anyone who intentionally rejects the opportunity to be blessed. Never met anyone like that. Said, no, no, I don't think I want my life to be blessed. They might get bogged down in some of the details or argue over the minutia of it. But at the end of the day, when you ask, would you like to be blessed? Yes, is the typical answer. And so as we read this stark, startling first line of Psalm 1, we are confronted with the reality of this. Do we want to be blessed? Is this the life we want to live? Is this what we want upon our life? I want to encourage you in your notes there, at the top of the note sheet, it begins, blessed is the man. And I want to challenge you, I want to ask you, what would it mean for you? What do you understand God's blessing to be? Hopefully, at the end of today's message, you'll have a little deeper understanding of that and it'll maybe inform you a little more. I pray it'll inspire you a little more. But, but all in all, I want to challenge you at some point before the end of the day to take that note sheet, to take your journal, and to record what you believe it means to be blessed. And to consider that for yourself. And to consider, is this the life that I want to live? A life of being blessed. What we see in Psalm 1 is the contrast between the life that is blessed and the life that does not live under the blessing of God. And I want us to take some time today to look at these contrasts. Three that I'll point out to you. The first contrast I want us to look at is in verse 1. And it's the contrast of living in the way of God's blessing. Living in the way of God's blessing. Go to verse 1 again with me and look there. Blessed is the man. And here's what the psalmist does. The psalmist uses three main areas of life, three phrases in these areas of life in order to highlight what it means to live in the way of God's blessing. He talks about the primary influence on the way we live. He talks about the practices and the patterns by which we regularly live or what we would call a lifestyle. And he talks about the way that we treat others. And he uses these to draw this contrast through these negative phrases. Look at the first one with me as he draws this contrast in living in the way of God's blessing. He says this, he says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. The first way that he identifies this contrast is talking about the primary influence on our life. The primary influences on our life. Walk is a term that refers to the way a person lives their life. That's something we're familiar with. It's not simply a warning to watch out for what you might consider to be wicked people. But rather, it's talking about the way that we live. He's warning against living in such a way that is primarily influenced by worldly wisdom. By living your life in such a way where human rationale determines the course of your life through the choices you make, the decisions that drive you or steer you, and even the relationships that surround you. He's warning against living in such a way where you take counsel upon your life to influence you that fails or neglects to consider what God's wisdom says and then to give God's wisdom first priority of influence in your life. Now, everyone has an opinion about how to live, right? Sure we do, because we're all living. And whether we acknowledge it or not, the way we live demonstrates our opinion about how we ought to live. And often it seems to make so much sense. But friends, the person who wants to live under God's blessing doesn't just ask the simple question of what makes sense. Now understand something, if you were to get to know me, you would find this to be true. I am a pragmatist through and through. If it works, that's what I'm going to do. 
Why would you not, right? Until it stops working and then you do something else and find something that works. But we're not just, we're not talking about pragmatism here. We're not talking about God's wisdom and trying to elevate it in some hyper-spirituality that sets it against pragmatism. Rather, what we're talking about is in the way in which you ascertain pragmatism in your life, the way in which you develop the philosophies about what you think about and how you think about those things, the very things that establish the foundation of your thinking, of your feeling, and of your living in those things, you don't just ask what seems to make sense because what everyone else around me is doing, but rather we ask the word from the fundamental beginning What does God's word say? I mean, that's as baseline, as fundamental to living as we can ask. And the person who wants to live under God's blessing walks by faith in God's wisdom by refusing to walk in the counsel of wickedness. That's what the psalmist is beginning here. See, so often one big problem is life is when you simply choose to do whatever happens to make sense at the moment. Worldly wisdom follows worldly ways in order to bring about one's own self-will. It always makes sense to the worldly-minded. And it's not that God's wisdom never makes sense to the worldly-minded, but seldom, if ever, does it make sense to those who are consumed with this worldly-mindedness. You see, God's wisdom follows God's ways to bring about God's will. And if your mind is not set on God's glory through His will and His way, His wisdom will never make sense to you. So, here's a way you can turn that and apply it in a practical scenario. When God's Word confronts you in your life and doesn't make sense or doesn't seem right or causes you to question it. It's not because God's word is wrong, but rather because your mind, your heart, your affections are set on something other than God's will. And so it serves you faithfully in that way to turn you back to Christ. The way you walk in life will be determined by what you intentionally put into your life and what you intentionally put up with in your life. And so when he says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, he is saying to us that the wisdom of God is what we are to put into our life and not just settle to put up with the worldly wisdom or rationale that it offers us. But he also offers us a a, a second way to uh, explain this contrast of living in the way of God's blessing. And that's this, through the practices and the patterns of our life. Not only the primary influences, but the practices and the patterns of our life. He says this, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who does not stand in the way of sinners. Who does not stand in the way of sinners. Stand, you're going to be astounded by this. Stand means to stay in one place or to remain. I'm just going to let that sink in for a moment. It's deep, right? No, it's not deep. But our understanding of it should probably deepen. You see, it, re- it references a regular or a repeated pattern of living, staying in one place, remaining in one pattern or one practice. And when the way of a sinner is your preferred lifestyle of choice in which you've chosen to remain, in which you have chosen to practice a way that is opposed to God's way, that is determined by sin, that is determined by self, then what he is saying is you choose to live outside of God's blessing. Now, let me acknowledge this. First of all, yes, all people sin and fall short of the glory of God. We talk about that every week. But what he's saying here in the way of sinners, he's not using the term in the generic mode in which we typically talk about all being sinners, but rather he's talking about the willful uh, uh, choice to live absent of 
or negligent of God, of his will, of his way, of his word. In other words, this, this way of the sinner is the way that refuses humility towards God, refuses repentance before God. It's those who choose a lifestyle that's contrary and that is opposed to God's word. They willfully choose that, knowingly choose the opposition to God's word, and walk in that way, if you will. It's a pattern of life that's demonstrated through personal choices, decisions, habits, attitudes, and actions that may oppose, may simply neglect, or even directly reject the wisdom of God's word. And so what he's telling us with this negative statement is that people who walk with God do not continue to live in a manner that consistently denies God, that consistently rejects His word or opposes His will in their life. Paul goes on to counsel us by using the same word in the New Testament. Galatians 5.1, he says this, It's for freedom that Christ has set you free, talking about from sin, And he says this, stand firm then and do not let yourself become again burdened by a yoke of slavery. So Paul is giving us the practical command of God's wisdom that says instead of standing in the way of sinners, stand firm in the freedom God has given you, opposing the wickedness for your life. Remember The way you live will be determined by what you put into your life and what you put up with in your life. And Paul says, don't put up with it. Stand against it. But he also says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, stand firm, talking about in the righteousness, in the counsel and in the wisdom of God, and let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Friends, that's a verse for all of us, not just a verse for Christian ministers. It's for every Christian. You see, the one who is blessed takes intentional measures to live in a godly manner. It doesn't mean that there's no interaction with non-Christians. Obviously, that's not true. It does mean, though, that exclusively those who are allowed to be the primary influence through the practices and the patterns of life are the godly who are choosing to walk after God, and that all interaction with non-Christians is done so to be a faithful witness to the hope and the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. You see, the righteous person isolates themselves from the open practice and the influence of sinfulness because he knows that it causes him to lose his own blessing. There is a willful choice that's being made that the psalmist is contrasting here. Will you walk in God's blessing? Or will you walk without it? And the one who seeks righteousness, desires true intimacy with God, desires true community among God's people that strengthens and builds their life so that they can walk in the world to be a faithful witness to those who are around them. And then he uses a third negative phrase. He says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who does not stand in the way of sinners, who does not sit in the seat of scoffers. You see, this is the way we relate to other people, this third illustration of contrast here. That seat is a position of influence. And it's a position when you hold influence over other people where you try to steer or direct them in your life. Now this might be a formal seat or a formal position. Say a position that has authority over or power over other people. And so you're actually able to use it in order to direct or steer other people's lives. But more importantly, if we never get to that place, it also deals with the private example or the personal example of the seat in which we live in the way in which we direct our attitudes and our relationships towards other people. And while life may place us in a formal place of having control or at least influence over others, and I I would argue that we all have that to some degree in some manner, surely we all too have that personal influence in the way that we learn to relate and think about other people. In either case, 
A scoffer is one who derides people and treats them in such a way to say that the scoffer is better than those who are scoffed at in some way to some measure. And so when we scoff at others, we use people to serve our own agendas, to serve our own good. And the thing that should strike us here is how common this is among people, even among the church. There's a lot of words that the New Testament uses to speak of this scoffing that the psalmist is referencing here, like gossip, slander, backbiting, those kinds of words. But they're all simply this. The placement of self in the seat of scoffing in order to use other people to satisfy or in some way try to serve yourself instead of being a servant to other people, which is what the gospel frees us to do. When we scoff at others, we use people to serve our own agendas. And how easy this is, how quickly something flies off the end of our tongue before it's been filtered through our mind and filtered through our spirit where God's word can convict us of what we're trying to do. You see, the psalmist challenges us here in the way we see other people. And he says that the person who lives blessed by God does not see other people as a means for more self-blessing, but as a way to share God's blessing. For God's blessing is always a means for Christians to live as a blessing to other people. And that's what he's getting at. So we, give, we get these three negative phrases that show us what the person who is blessed does not do. In other words, there is a way in which we live in God's blessing. And he says this, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, who does not stand in the way of sinners, who does not sit in the seat of scoffers. But then, listen friends, listen, here's what I want you to understand about blessing today. That blessing is not a gift that is received for services or acts rendered, but blessing reveals a relationship that is being cultivated. Blessing reveals a relationship that's being cultivated. Notice this before we move on, that the psalmist doesn't just tell us, listen, you need to walk in wisdom, you need to stand for truth, and you need to be an encourager. Amen. Praise God. Let's go do it, right? That's not how he begins. Now, that's not wrong. As a matter of fact, later throughout the Psalms, you'll see that littered throughout. In the New Testament, we've already seen where the encouragement is there for us to do all of these things, to walk in God's wisdom, to stand for truth in many different ways, and also to be an encourager as we serve other people. But that's not how the psalmist begins here because that's not principally or primarily where God's blessing comes from. He points to our first priority, which turns us to the right action. That the man who is blessed is the one who what? Delights himself in the law and consumes himself with it day and night. But his delight, but, there's a contrast here. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And upon His law, He meditates day and night. Friends, hear me. One delight. One consuming affection in your life. How strong could it actually be? The psalmist purports to us in the first two verses of Psalm 1 that this one delight and this one consuming meditation is powerful enough to cover a multitude of sins in our life, to cover a lifestyle of wickedness, and to completely redeem all of our influence for wickedness in life. One delight! One consuming meditation. What could be so powerful to turn us from a life of wickedness to walk in righteousness? Actually, the question is not what could turn us, but who. You see, blessing, friends, comes through an ever-increasing, all-consuming, day-by-day, moment-by-moment, overflowing life of walking with Jesus. 
but his delight is in the law of the Lord. You see, the psalmist loved the law because through it he knew the Lord. This is so key for us, friends, throughout all the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament. And though we read from a different perspective today, the same scriptures serve no lesser purpose for us because Jesus reveals himself continually throughout all of God's word, the Bible. Jesus declared that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them, Matthew 5, 17. And then Paul goes on to say that Jesus is the end of the law, Romans 10, 4. And that word end there has so wrongly been interpreted so often to say we no longer have to worry about the law of the Old Testament because Jesus is the end of it. But what that word really means there is that he's the completion of it. He's the fulfillment of it so that when we read the law just like King David, just like Shepherd David, just like Psalmist David when he said his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. When we meditate on the word, the instruction that comes to us through the Old and the New Testament, Jesus is set before us. God with us. God for us. God in our place is set before us. That is the one consuming desire that turns a life from darkness and wickedness to righteousness. He is the one who does for us what we could not do for ourselves, what we would not do for ourselves. Friends, the point is this David understood what is so vital for us to understand today. The life that is blessed will not always perform perfectly. Did you hear that? You see, if, if, if I'm banging against one wrong ideology in the room today, it's this. God won't bless me if I don't perform perfectly. Because that's what he does, right? We perform, God blesses. I'd propose to you that God blesses long before you ever conceive of performing. The life that is blessed will not always perform perfectly. But neither will it coddle and persist in sinful patterns and habits that consistently lead you away from a growing relationship with Jesus. You see, the fire of relationship burns so deeply in your heart that it consumes all of those little false gods that want to lead you away from Him. And says, nah, there's no glory there. Get out of here. Nope, there's no pleasure in that. No, there's no goodness in that. My goodness is in Jesus. My pleasure is in Christ. My glory is in Him and in Him alone. Rather, what will happen is this, friend. You'll regularly practice repentance. You'll see all your filthy, wicked deeds. And you'll go, God, I'm not going to ever do this right, am I? But I don't have to because you've already done it perfectly for me. And you'll begin to repent and turn in faith to Christ for greater joy, for, for, for greater satisfaction. You see, blessed is the person who lives all of life with this one defining love. That Jesus lived the life I could never live so that he could die the death I could never die in order to pay my debt of sin that I could never pay. That's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the contrast that the psalmist is drawing here when he says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. It is one consuming affection. It is one consuming meditation that is so powerful it overcomes all the deceit, all the condemnation, all the guilt, all the shame, all the past actions that, that have hurt others and hurt yourself. And it redeems them. Redeems them. One, defining affection. What a contrast 
The first contrast shows that the person who is blessed lives in the way of God's blessing, cultivating this strong, growing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the second contrast follows right on the hill and provides a picture of the four benefits of of God's blessing and righteousness. So here's the second contrast as he contrasts us to recognize the benefits of God's blessings. Look at verse 3 and verse 4 with me when he says this. He is like a tree. Who is he? He's the man who's been blessed. He is the person who has been blessed. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. You recognize the benefit of God's blessing. That's the second contrast that we look at. You see, the psalmist begins to describe the benefits of the life of the one who is blessed by using this analogy of a tree. He is like a tree planted by streams of living water. Look at the first recognition he gives to us, that God's blessing means provision for your life. A stream of living water with a tree planted next to it whose roots, you know what that tree will actually do? The roots will actually grow in the direction of the water. Have you ever had a poplar tree in your yard and been through a drought? That tree's roots will begin to rise to the top and run through your yard looking for water. And if you have a water hose nearby, it will curl up and strangle the rubber of that water hose to try and squeeze the water out of it. It literally will. Now, if you're an arborist, I'm sorry if I got some of the technical details wrong. Why? Because God's blessing means provision. And a stream of living water next to a tree planted to it, is representative of all necessary nutrients and provision for life. That's the imagery the psalmist is giving here, this never-ending provision for all the demands of life. Jesus tells the woman at the well, John 4, that, that he is living water, and he is the one from which when you drink, you will never thirst again. He's not talking about this kind of water from which we consume for this body, but he's talking about the deep gaff of the soul which we long so deeply to be loved and to be accepted and to be known in this world with our maker. You see, it's not even to say that we have all that we need in this life, but that in every need of this life, Jesus will show himself faithful and true to meet our needs. Friends, it reminds us to ask ourselves the question, is this the living stream that we are living out of? Is Jesus the one from which our roots are growing to draw from? Are we pursuing other provisions. You know, recently, just in the last week, I've been amazed at the attacks on the Bible. Not amazed in the sense that the attacks are there. I mean, quite frankly, friends, when, when the attackers or the antagonists towards Christianity begin to attack the Bible, I'm like, dude, that's the oldest and the most boring trick in all the world because you're trying the very thing that Satan did at the, in the beginning in Genesis 3. Attack the Word of God. Let's go after it. And so when I read someone who is an atheist or one that that doesn't believe the claims of Christianity and they attack Scripture, I'm going, oh, that's kind of old hat. But okay, if you don't have anything better to write, but you've got to produce some content, okay. That argument's been made before and conquered. But I also read um, some pastors or at least those who bear the title of pastor. And this is probably what disturbed me the most. Who don't discount or discredit the word of God. They just began to cast speculation at it. And they just began to say things in such a way for their readership. Instead of the authorship of the Bible. Now I am hot and bothered. I know what my mama used to go through, you know, like when hairs that aren't there, but I can still feel them on the back of my neck, begin to stand up. Now I'm angry. Why? Because these attacks against God's Word, they're not new. Listen, doubt and unbelief, they're buried in the sinful nature of every person. But friends, discrediting God's Word is the first And the greatest way that Satan deceives and misleads, this one specific article I read began to infer that that 
that God was so much more than just the Bible. Uh Uh-uh. Not to our knowledge. Not, not, Not in what we have. I'm not saying... That, that God is not in some way in his presence and in his being more than words on paper. But I'll tell you in the revelation that he has sovereignly chosen to give to us, it's here. This is not in some way insufficient for your relationship with God. It is sufficient in every way. As a matter of fact, the second you step away from it and begin to relate to God without it, You've just entered idolatry and you're in false worship and you are an offensive aroma in the nostrils of God. If you just want to know where he stands with it, do not alter the word of God and do not veer from it. That's totally a rabbit trail. I need to come back to the sermon. The Bible and prayer, friends, through spiritual disciplines, the discipline of of nurturing our soul through the reading of God's Word and through communing with God in conversational prayer, praying His Word and letting His Word condition our affections and our feelings and our our, our longings and our, our thinking and our relating to Him. These spiritual disciplines that come through the Bible and prayer in our personal devotion, but also in our gathered worship, they remain as potent with life-giving strength. Why? Because Jesus reveals himself through them. That's why the psalmist said that his delight is in the law of the Lord. It's in the word of God. Why? Because through the word, God comes real. And he comes to us. He becomes personal. And so he makes this first contrast of recognizing the benefits of God's blessing by talking about the provision that he gives. But he also says that God's blessing means that our life is productive, that it yields its fruit in season, that the man who is blessed, his life yields fruit in its season. I love that word. Do not miss that three-letter word, it's. We'll come right back to it. You see, the life that is planted deeply and sourced with full provision always produces fruit. If there is no fruit, Jesus warns us about this in the Gospel of John. If there is no fruit, it's because it's wrongly sourced. It's connected. It's grafted in to the wrong vine. And sin tells us that all things are made futile and meaningless. That's what the whole book of Ecclesiastes is about. Let me ask you, do you think if you could be the wisest person and simultaneously the richest person ever in the history of humanity, that it would help you somewhat more? Ecclesiastes, a whole book, says no. Why? Because it was written by that person who was recognized in the world as the wisest and even to this day stands as the richest in his riches that were uncountable. And what did he say? Meaningless. Meaningless. It's all meaningless. What? Without Jesus. Without delighting in that one consuming affection that has power over all else. Nothing provides lasting meaning without God's hand of blessing touching it. When God blesses, everything produces its fruit in season. Few things bring meaning to life like productivity in life, right? I mean, even the smallest things. Uh, I was sick over Christmas. I got sick the day after Christmas and and was sick for several days, but man, on Sunday, I was, I had been in that bed for two and a half days, and I was going nuts, and so were everyone else in the house, even though I was staying out of the rest of the house, because I didn't want to make them sick, but I'm able to make people miserable from long distances away, especially when I'm sick and whining. They wouldn't even bring me a bell to ring, so I had to, you know, beat on the wall or something, and I told Kristen, I said, tomorrow, there are 13 people in one house, five of which were under the age of 15. And I told Kristen, this house looks like a tornado hit it. Tomorrow we change it. And we did. We got up the next morning and we kissed our, my brother and his family goodbye and my sister and her family goodbye. And they were going to in-laws' homes and we were staying there. And, and we uh, fed the children breakfast and smiled at them and said, you take the vacuum and you take the dust cloth and we're about to attack this house. And we began to undecorate. That is a vile word. Only second to the word decorate, in my opinion. But 
We undecor- five hours, we undecorated this house. We cleaned it from top to bottom. We gave it the works. I mean, my mom was like, please stop throwing that away. Don't put that away. Don't do-. You know what I mean? I was like, no, no, mom, this is for your good. It's going to hurt me more than it hurts you, but maybe not. And we cleaned her house. We sat down about 3.30 that afternoon, took a deep breath and went, this feels good. Why? Because we've been productive. We didn't do anything but clean the house. But it felt good. It felt good. Some of you are still, that's looming right in front of you. You're like, does it feel good enough for me to actually go home and do it today? You know, it's interesting how the blessing of God means our life is productive. Gives us meaning. That we can produce something with our lives that matters. And few things bring meaning to life like productivity. And yet greed, greed so often threatens to steal our productivity. Because here's what greed does. Greed wants your fruit in every season and in all seasons instead of its season. Thank you. May I have another? Thank you. May I have another? I heard one time, you know what the millionaire most wants? Just one more dollar. Just just one more. And when he gets that one, just one more, just one more. So greed threatens us. And, and when greed drives us, friends, I know in my life, I'm never less productive with my life than when I forsake the most important things like rest, like family, and, and, and I'm trying to chase what I have made important with that. Because I can leave the light on, the computer keeps rolling, and I can just keep working. And the longer I work, the less productive I've come. Because I'm not trusting in anyone other than me. That's why I hate holidays. I genuinely do. I hate vacations. Not because they're bad. I actually love them. I'm using the word hate in a very, you know, ironic way here, I suppose. Because the first few days drive me nuts doing nothing. And so I create projects around the house and begin to do stuff. And Why? Well, that's ugly and I don't need to get into my sin. So, bears fruit in its season. Friends, learning contentment is so important for receiving and living in the blessing of God. That's what the psalmist is saying to you here. There is a season, there is a time. Learning contentment means not so much that we learn to love things less, as much as it means learning to be grateful for what we have more than longing for what we don't have. Paul says this, you have to learn contentment when you have a lot and when you have great need. See, that's two situations. And in this world, both of those situations provide us endless justification for why something else is what we need more than what we already have. But when we learn contentment, we experience gratitude for what we have and we rest from what we do. And in both of those, gratitude for what we have and rest from what we do, we simply make the most powerful statement we can make. God, I trust in you. I trust in you. And this, friends, is how we live in the blessing of God, a life that is productive. I was driving through Kansas in the middle of December. We were out bird hunting. Hunting, didn't do any killing. There were no birds to be killed. But as I drove in Kansas, I turned to the guy driving the truck and I said, where do you think the farmers are right now? What do you think they're doing? There was kind of a long pause and he looked back and he said, I guess they're hunting because the fields were empty. They were cut down. The harvest was taken. You don't get to harvest in every season. And if you try to harvest in every season, you'll not only ruin your life, you'll ruin the soil, you'll ruin the seed, you'll ruin everything that might produce a crop when it is time. When God blesses your life, all you do, rest included, serves to produce what you need, when you need, 
for all your needs and much to share for the needs of others. There's another way that he draws this contrast when he says that God's blessings means we can persevere. And what does it say? And its leaf does not wither. Maybe this is what we're really running from in life. We're worried about the withered leaf, right? God's blessing comes even in test and trial. God's blessing comes even in hardship and suffering. How powerful to know, friends, that God sustains us in every season. And friends, might I propose to you today that the only thing that you can put into your life on this earth and know that it will not wither or fade away is God's word. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8, you've heard it before, but I will remind us of it one more time. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Not even your memories will last forever. For some of you, they're already fleeting right now, like you just can't remember anything. But when you're gone, so are your memories. But the Word of God stands. So when you put it into your life, it's there forever. Forever. Reading God's Word is not about completing a task list, as it's so often made to be. But combined with prayer, the Bible is where relationship with Jesus is cultivated in every season of life. And strength to persevere comes from a regular consumption of God's Word. Do you have a plan to read it this year? We can help you with that if you'll let us. The last one he gives is that God's blessing means prosperity. In all that he does, he prospers. Oh, goodness. Where are you going with this one, Pastor? Be really careful with this or you'll step it. I'm not going to be careful with this. Prosperity is a tricky thing for us today, but it's because our understanding of it is darkened and broken and insufficient. We don't use the word much because so many shysters overuse it in the wrong ways. And I'm not casting condemnation on any of it. Their deeds have already done that. The truth of the matter is simply this, that God's will, are you ready? Is to prosper you. The one who is blessed, it says, in all that he does. Not just your work. Not just your home, not just your life, not just your relationships. In all things, he prospers. You see, this word literally means to succeed. The problem we have with prosperity gospel is twofold. Number one, it's being wrongly preached. And it's not the prosperity gospel, it's that the gospel prospers us. There's a big difference there. But the second one is, it's always measured in worldly terms, worldly rationale. Success is our problem. We have a wrong definition of it. And we believe that prospering always equals something that can be held in this hand or measured in this life. That's our problem with prosperity. I'm not saying it's always devoid of that. I'm just saying it's always not measured out in that. And prosperity formed God's promise for His people long before any prophet that was false picked it up and started using it in a wrong way. And that's what we need to understand. We faithfully recognize and receive God's blessing when we take what we have and we steward it for God's glory by God's direction in order to produce greater glory for God and good for others, all while experiencing the abundant blessing of God for our own lives. Remember, the contrast he's drawing here is that we recognize the benefit of God's blessing. And so faithful stewardship is the ongoing recognition of God's blessing. You see, friends, we don't have to fear success. Rather, what we should fear is thinking and believing that success and prosperity were all because of me. That's how the world thinks about it. And that's how the wicked thinks about it. And look what it says about the wicked in verse 4. The wicked are not so. What do you mean not so? They're not planted like a tree by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf that does not wither. It just says they're like chaff. Driven away by the wind. And it seems so powerful to work now. And then it's gone. And then it's gone. The third contrast I'll close with briefly is the reward of God's blessing. Verse 5 and 6. So he goes on to talk about the wicked. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. 
For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The psalmist paints a very different and dark picture for the one who lives in wickedness. Here's the, here's the description he gives. They are damned eternally to suffer without mercy. They are isolated in complete loneliness. And they are perishing without hope. A life devoid of God is the magnification and culmination of every great fear and anxiety most fully manifested in life. And then he gives one simple comprehensive statement that describes the one who is blessed. Here is our reward. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. As the worship team returns, let me just say this. The reward of God's blessing is not that you get something from God, but that you get God. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. That's the reward of God's blessing, is to know God. God blesses the person beyond all measure and imagination who walks daily with Jesus. The question I end with today is simply this. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God genuinely blesses to that extent? The psalmist says, hey, I'm going to draw some stark contrast for you. Hoping to persuade you. That there is one consuming affection, there is one consuming meditation that is more powerful than all of these others that compete for your life. And it is a relationship with Jesus Christ that will lead you in every way into God's blessing for your life. Do you know that blessing today? Are you living in that blessing? We would love to help you understand what it means to have that relationship. As a church, we want to pray for that blessing upon our lives, upon our, the life of our church, upon our city. And so this week, I want to call you, the church, the elders want to lead us in a week of prayer and fasting. Each day, beginning this afternoon, to explain, and then Monday through Friday, we'll upload a prayer guide for you to take and just to pray through. If you would Maybe fast one day at lunch or fast at some point during the week and take this prayer guide and just pray for God to work in your life, in your church's life, in your city to bless people, to bless people. Would you join us in that? And now, as the worship team leads us, we'll come to the table and we'll begin where God completes the blessing at the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ.